Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. got a situation for you. Let's say it's the 20th century and your name is Andrew Lloyd Webber. Sorry, Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber, Baron of Sydmonton. And you have infinite money from creating musicals like Cats or By Jeeves. And one day you wake up fuming angry because your money isn't making more money. So you decide to take your musical money and turn it into movie money. And let's say you do that about six times. And what do you get? The premise of this video. Lloyd Webber is an English composer and impresario of musical theater. Several of his musicals have run for more than a decade in both the West End and on Broadway. Also, his musicals have been adapted into films, and that's what we're talking about. If you want to know more history, go Google it yourself. Now, what's on the menu are what the chef designates as films, which means no pro shots or anything like that, which means no by Jeeves. Yes, yes, I know we're all looking for By Jeeves content, but you're gonna have to look for it somewhere else. With a badly bruised libido, exit booster, tray rapido. So, Chef, what do we have for our first course here? <sighs> Smells like wacky freeze frames and 70s orchestrations. Oh. Perfection. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. Oh, Jesus, he has risen. Uh, no, 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 not, not really. Just a quick visit. The first ever adaptation of an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical came in the form of the 1973 film Jesus Christ Superstar, directed by Norman Jewison. And now for context for where the genre of musical film was at the time. It was dead, and Hello Dolly pulled the trigger after Dr. Doolittle loaded the gun and cocked it. So because of that, this film wants to embrace the counterculture nature of the hippie lifestyle and embrace the techniques of early 70s music videos. The premise of the musical itself is that Christ was the first superstar, equated with the contemporary rock idols of the time. The ordinary people around him begin to get a little worried after a while. They like him, and they don't want him to get in trouble with the Romans. Most worried of all is Judas, <gasps> Judas, who advises Christ to maintain a low profile. Superstar has a fantastic cast, consisting of Ted Neely as Jesus, Carl Anderson as Judas, and Yvonne Eilman as Mary Magdalene. The on-location shooting in Israel adds a level of verisimilitude that is offset by the crazy anachronisms of the costumes and set design. I mean, look at this guy! Pink tank top, cargo pants topped with a tactical helmet, backstrap machine gun, and a stick! This is the next Coachella theme right here. I'm perfect. I'm finally perfect. This was director Norman Jewison's follow-up to the Oscar-darling Fiddler on the Roof, likely aiming to keep the same reputation and lofty audience and critical reception. However, this film left critics mixed, and audiences, despite coming out for a respectful box office, had some choice reactions, specifically criticism from numerous Jewish anti-defamation groups. As Lloyd Webber described, There had been rumblings around the Broadway opening. Tim had successfully argued on TV with a rabbi called Mark H. Tenenbaum that it was a fact that both the victim and his oppressors were Jewish and that his lyrics deliberately took no sides. Furthermore, the central point of the New Testament is that Jesus chose to die following God's will. This time the complaint caused serious damage. Ironically, not only was Norman Jewison's last movie Fiddler on the Roof, but he had gone out of his way to mitigate criticism by having us write a new scene for the priests to deal with this issue. Looking back, I wonder if the scene exacerbated the problem. So instead of diving into that rabbit hole, I'm going to dive into the new songs that ALW thinks might have exacerbated the problem. It is common in adaptations of musical work from stage to screen to add in a brand new song or two for the film adaptations. A cynic may say it's almost entirely a practice in the industry for a composing team to secure a Best Original Song Oscar, which may as well be the incentive for theater composers to sell their babies to the devils of Hollywood for a glimpse of that sweet, sweet EGOT. So you know every film on this list has definitely got one of these, which I will forever dub the super awesome new song that everyone loves, or Sansel for short. 
Can I have a little bit more sansel on the side of this, please? Thank you. So Superstar had the first of Andrew Lloyd Webber's sansels, and quite possibly his worst. This is the song Lloyd Webber was referring to in his quote about how unproblematic he is and how he's never done anything wrong ever, and that song is Then We Are Decided. This song was not in the original concept album, and is still not performed in most stage productions, but was added to the movie as a way to explain the motives of the priest and try to give them a sympathetic framing, intended to make them less evil with a capital E. But honestly, when you make these guys look like a shirtless Darth Vader from a Star Wars porno, no amount of nuance is really going to dampen the impact. In this song, Caiaphas tells Annas that he's afraid of what Jesus could do with more followers, and insists that they intervene before he gains any more fame. This song is bad. It's very bad, in fact. It is purely meandering mumbling between two fellows with beautiful beards, and there's no chorus, it's barely a song. It's basically two guys talking while an electric guitar fights them for sole attention. Don't you see that we could fall? If we are to last at all, we cannot be divided. It doesn't push across the plot, it's not pleasant to listen to, and what it tries to do in the form of we're not anti-Semitic, please believe us, it fails hard at. So I give this Sansel a 2 out of 10. A bad, bad, bad addition that both made the show worse in structure and overall intention. Another song that could be considered a Sansel is titled Could We Start Again Please, which was not in the original album, nor in the original London production but was added into the Broadway show to capitalize on star Yvonne Eilman's fame from the show's billboard hit, I Don't Know How to Love Him. So this is a new-ish song. It wasn't written especially for the film, so it doesn't count, but it's not a bad song. I love the film. It's fantastic 70s cheese that stands shoulder to shoulder with the Phantom of the Paradise or the Rocky Horror Picture Show. The performances are out of this world and immediately iconic. And to be honest, I grew up with this film. I can't be objective. I love it. But who cares what I think? What did the Baron of Sidmonton think? He hated it. Of course he hated it. Andrew Lloyd Webber's own opinion on the film is fairly dismissive, stating in his memoir, We had seen the movie. I thought it sounded awful. I was miffed because I had been fired from the orchestrations in favor of Norman Jewison's anointed musical director Andre Previn, who, gallingly, got nominated for an Oscar for them. Considering the movie soundtrack used the original rock tracks from our album, I strongly felt that David and Robert should have fought to get me a co-credit. However, I haven't seen the movie for 45 years, so I may well be better off without it. All I remember is liking the opening, which I think featured a troop of touring players arriving in the desert in a bus to enact the story of Jesus. I hated bits of intrapolated music that I didn't compose and presume Previn wrote. Andrew Lloyd Webber is chasing that Oscar gold because now he knows the kind of acclaim that can bring to a piece. It would be over a decade before Andrew Lloyd Webber's work would once more be brought into the dark wood of Holly. In that decade, Andrew Lloyd Webber's prominence in the theater world would grow vast, and so would his ego and finances. He had changed the theater landscape with shows like Cats, The Phantom of the Opera, and Starlight Express, and brought about even more impressive lawsuits. <laughs> the man loves to borrow music. But Lloyd Webber was no longer the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, 25-year-old ingenue he was when Superstar was released, but a jaded, cynical, 48-year-old businessman. <sighs> Smell that Sansel. Filming has finally begun in the long-awaited life story of Evita Perone, starring pop singer Madonna. According to its producers, the film is 100% historically accurate, except for the part where Mrs. Perone has group sex with the Houston Rockets. Evita is a 1996 American musical drama film 
based on the 1976 concept album of the same name, produced by Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, which also inspired a 1978 musical. The film depicts the life of Ava Perone, detailing her beginnings, rise to fame, political career, and death at the age of 33. Huh. Just like Jesus. It's the same show! Directed by Alan Parker and written by Parker and Oliver Stone, Evita stars Madonna as Eva Perone, Jonathan Price as Eva's husband Juan Perone, and Antonio Banderas as Che, an everyman who acts as the film's narrator. Filming took place on locations in Buenos Aires and Budapest, and on sound stages at Shepperton Studios. The film's production in Argentina was met with controversy, as the cast and crew faced protests over fears that the project would tarnish Eva Perón's image. When we first arrived, it was actually uh, you know, not very nice to come from the airport and see these huge signs everywhere saying, Go home, Madonna, or more importantly, Go home, Alan Parker and your film crew, which was very worrying. <laughs> but it proved to be like a very small group of people. Some small group of very conservative faction of the uh, the new Peronist regime in Buenos Aires um, had started painting slogans on the walls in certain areas of the city saying, you know, Evita lives, Madonna go home, or Evita lives, Alan Parker go home, because they didn't want us to make the movie, period. The press blew it out of proportion. They made it seem like we arrived and there were just, like, riots and people throwing hand grenades at us and that we were totally unwelcome. Now for context of where the genre of musical film was at the time. It was dead, and Hello Dolly pulled the trigger after Dr. Doolittle loaded the gun and cocked it. But we were still a few years away from when Moulin Rouge started CPR and Chicago sprung it back to life. So because of that, this film takes the opposite approach that Superstar took. It embraced realism, and the film is shot as if it were a political thriller. Evita is a sung-through piece, it's a musical drama, opera, whatever word one wants to use. But other than that, I'm not making any nods to it being a musical. I will make it as if I was making a straightforward dramatic film like I was making Midnight Express on Mississippi Burning. It just happens that people are going to be singing the dialogue uh, and hopefully um, that will be as realistic and naturalistic as possible. Director of photography Darius Kanji was initially reluctant about working on a musical, but was inspired by Parker's passion for the project. For the film's visual style, Kanji and Parker were influenced by the works of American realist painter George Bellows. Kanji shot Evita using movie cam cameras with Cook anamorphic lenses. He used Eastman EXR 5245 film stock for exteriors in Argentina, 5293 for the Argentinian interiors, and 5248 for any scenes shot during overcast days and combat sequences. The film is beautiful to look at, but not showy. There are moments of theatricality, and they stand out more because of the reality the film is based in. Antonio Banderas is fantastic, playing the everyman Che, and Madonna holds her own, but is not vocally capable in comparison to the greats like Patti Lapone or Elena Roger. Sometimes this works to Madonna's benefit. Take the ridiculous section of A New Argentina, where I'm pretty sure no one can understand what Lapone is saying. Where in the film, they take it down a few notches so you can clearly hear the words coming out of Madonna's mouth. That being said, it does kind of diminish the power of a song that's very vocally based, like Rainbow High. So Christian Dior me from my head to my toes. I need to be tired from my head to my toes. I need to be tired from my head to my toes. I need 
But when you've got a star like Madonna, you're gonna have to deal with the demands of Madonna. There was a song in the original album and stage show called Another Suitcase in Another Hall, which is a tangent. Ava invades Juan Perón's life and kicks out his very young mistress. This young mistress, which is a character we've never seen before and will not see again, sings a ballad about the young girl wondering what her future will hold and comes to the conclusion that she will probably be fine. But it became one of the more popular songs in the show. And you better believe Madonna would rather be rotting in hell than see a popular song go to a one-scene nobody. So the story was adjusted to make it so Madonna sang that song. And you know what? The film is probably better for it. Hooray for star demands, I guess. Speaking of using your star appropriately, you better believe this film has a sansel. And probably one of Andrew Lloyd Webber's best, too. Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice teamed up for the first time in many years to write a brand new song for this film adaptation of Evita, entitled You Must Love Me, which became a hit in its own right. Madonna still performs it regularly, and more recently, Lana Del Rey did a really, really good cover of the song, so you should really check that out. The song would go on to win Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice the Oscar glory, and would go down to be included in every subsequent production of Evita. I think my favorite song is the new song, You Must Love Me. It's beautiful, it's simple, um, and I haven't heard it a million times. <laughs> the song is about Ava discovering at the end of her life that her husband Juan was not just using her the way that she was using him, that he actually loves her, and she loves him too. It's emotionally devastating, and really important with the overall arc of the story. In spite of what anyone may say about, you know, Ava and Juan used each other, or they just, you know, it was a relationship of convenience or for power, or whatever, I, I do believe that they loved each other. But then again, they were both Nazi sympathizers, so who really cares that they were in love? Evita is an anomaly compared to most musical films. It's a very dark and serious movie that happens to have songs. It's directed beautifully, the cinematography is jaw-dropping, and the actors do their jobs perfectly. Is it a good movie, though? I'd say no. But it's not the fault of the performers, the director, or anything like that. It all comes down to the source material being woefully ill-intended for a screen presence and barely intended for a stage adaptation. But nobody cares what I have to say about the movie. What does Andrew Lloyd Webber think? Yeah, he's basically towed the line as far as the film goes. He won his Oscar, he ain't gonna talk shit and get hit. I'm sure it killed him inside to lower the vocals of Evita to fit Madonna's vocal range, but he has pretty much stayed silent. In fact, he's more recently come out in praise of Madonna and the film in general. Andrew Lloyd Webber told Variety in 2021, Evita, he concludes, was the best of the lot, and that's due to Madonna's performance. To this day, I don't think anyone else could have done it better. But Madonna had a different story to tell, as she said in a 2020 Instagram Live. I was totally and utterly intimidated by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice and the story of Eva Perone, the real historical story, and living up to all the great singers and actresses who had played her before me. I think I had a few nervous breakdowns, worrying that I was going to be fired every day, basically. When a fan asked her if Andrew Lloyd Webber was nice, Madonna replied, No, he wasn't. He was not nice to me. I'm not sure he even wanted me in the movie. Thank God Alan Parker did. But Andrew Lloyd Webber immediately denied it, making a statement a few days later. She must have me confused with somebody else. We had a very smooth and productive working relationship on the Evita film. So who knows what to think about that, but I personally love the Evita film and think it's so well made. But let's move on. So, Chef, what do we have up next? I don't smell any sansal on that. Is, is that gonna be a problem? I 
LP of Dreamcoat, how I love my coat of many colors. It was red and yellow and green and brown and scarlet and black and ochre and peach and ruby and... Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat is a TV movie where Sir Richard Attenborough wears brown face. Okay, okay, you're right. That was a bad faith commentary. I can do better. Let's do it again. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat literally has a song called Benjamin Calypso. I tried. No buts, no buts. Benjamin is honest as coconuts. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat is a 1999 British direct-to-video film adaptation of the 1972 Andrew Lloyd Webber musical of the same name. Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice originally wrote the piece as a 15-minute pop cantata for the Coley Court Prep School in London, where a friend of Webber's taught music. Eventually, Webber and Rice expanded the piece into a full show. But this is a TV movie. And TV plays by its own rules, and its own rules are that there are no rules! You can put anything on TV! I'm an icon! I'm on cable television! One call to my agent, and I'll... The plot of the film follows the same story of Joseph's life as the West End musical. The only change is the addition of a very brief framing device, in which the actors begin the film as teachers in a school where the students become the children's chorus of the musical. Recently, Lloyd Webber himself released on his own website that Rocket Pictures was to make an animated feature film version of Joseph. Rocket Pictures is also very well known because they also produced the Elton John biopic Rocket Man, as well as Gnomeo and Juliet and the world-famous Sherlock Gnomes. Oh gee, I'm sure this'll be great. The film is directed by music video director David Mallet, who's most known for shooting music videos for David Bowie, Freddie Mercury, and Joan Jett. He also directed the 1998 film stage production of Cats, which is also bad for different reasons, and will not be covered here. What can I really say about this movie? It's a TV movie starring Donny Osmond. We all knew what we were gonna get. Maria Friedman is the highlight of the entire thing, and honestly, it's just a real rough sit. The sets are cheap looking, the acting is B-level at best. There's a lot of racial shit in this that I just don't want to go into that much. But you know what, take everything I'm saying here with a grain of salt, because what do I know? I showed this to my friend and podcast co-host Andrew DeWolf for our Patreon, and you know what, he laughed his ass off the entire time and could not wipe the smile off his face, so... Chess, this is the best fucking thing I've ever seen in my life, how is this... How did you ever not like this? Maybe it'll bring you joy in the same way, but I can just tell you it's a slog for me to watch. Andrew Lloyd Webber has not said anything very controversial about this musical or this film adaptation. It just is a thing that exists. Neither positive nor negative, just existing in the ether. So really, what could Andrew Lloyd Webber say? Benjamin is honest as coconuts. It's a TV movie based on a musical that is so problematic and and, and I'm done talking. What do we have next, chef? This smells like something I've already talked about today. Critics are calling it a less violent passion of the Christ. Aw shit, here we go again. Jesus Christ Superstar is the passion of the Christ as seen through the eyes of Judas. This new adaptation of this musical is based on the 1996 London and 2000 Broadway revivals of the show, directed by Gail Edwards. This movie reorchestrates a musical to be set in modern times. It is not the superstar of the 70s, but rather one for the 21st century. We did it guys, we're in the 21st century!
In the early aughts, Andrew Lloyd Webber must have woken up one day and thought, you know, I'm still salty that Norman Jewison made a mockery of my Jesus musical by trying to make it good, and I want to make it terrible, so let's go make it terrible. Instead of the usual desert visage one would usually associate with the passion play, we get a graffitied warehouse police state with Darth Vader cops and leather-jacketed thick boys and frosted tips and swastikas? Swastikas? I can't imagine Jesus was happy to see that there. Musical as is isn't the most subtle thing in the world, but here? Pontius Pilate is dressed as an SS officer. And that's not even mentioning how other cultures are represented in this film. The previous claims of anti-Semitism in the initial film adaptation aren't really addressed. Instead, they just make the Jewish priests so cartoonishly evil that they're sitting in the Death Star wearing Sith jackets while plotting the death of Jesus. Subtle, right? Speaking of subtlety, or the lack thereof, this adaptation makes the bold choice of removing the nuance of Judas's character by making him to be the outright villain of this adaptation. Always giving a sly glance or an evil grin or a sexual assault. Oh, or a proper physical assault. You can't even focus on the halfway decent points the lyrics are trying to give him because just look at him. <gasps> Judas. On top of all of that, the performances all tend to fall flat. The voices are either too raw and unfiltered or too perfect and polished. Jérôme Pradhomme, for one, is particularly miscast as Judas, where I believe he would have been better suited in a role like Pilate. He vocally can't muster up to the crazy high notes without squeaking. Please! You sad, pathetic man! I really didn't come here on my own accord! I should be savage anymore! I mean, how miscast must you be? when you're the only one who didn't transfer with this cast to the Broadway version. Frosted tip Simon Zealot had to take over the role of Judas. Tony Vincent, please don't beat me up, but those tips are ridiculous. Also, is it weird to anyone else that this clip shot on a potato from the Rosie O'Donnell show looks better than the cinematically produced feature film? You know, just food for thought. Rick Mayall as Herod is a brief moment of reprieve and joy but honestly, nothing compared to the Josh Mustel insanity from the 1973 version. This has to be one of the whitest casts I've ever seen. It's so white it looks like a Brady Bunch reunion. It happens that Glenn does look like Christ. He's got blue eyes and chiseled features and long sort of curly hair. That's a yikes. The orchestrations are so lame and drenched in early aught techniques that really date this adaptation in a way that is absolutely not charming at all unlike the Jewison film. The production design looks like they're shooting on the same set as Beekman's World or Bill Nye the Science Guy. Also, at the end, Jesus explodes. Into your hands, I commend my spirit! My eyes! But if there's any form of redemption within this movie, it's the performance from Fred Johansson as Pilot. He knows exactly what kind of trash he's in, and he makes his performance count for every frame he's on screen. Hell yeah, man. You just scream every line. I appreciate you. I wash my hands. So I think this film is lame and dated, with more muscles than a Mad Max sequel. But what did Mr. Lord of Sidmonton think? Of course he loves it.
Lloyd Webber has stated in the making of documentary that this was the version closest to what he originally envisioned for the project. He chose Gail Edwards to direct after seeing her interpretation of the musical in Dublin, which featured a more modernistic and sinister approach than the original stage productions. What Lloyd Webber and co kept saying in this propaganda piece, I mean making of documentary, is that they wanted it to feel real and grounded and gritty. But when I look at the film, I just see these perfect polished sets. British dancers who couldn't hurt a fly, and a strange amount of gore that is really out of place considering how extreme every other aspect of the film is. It's got the early 2000s fisheye look of Road Trip or Inspector Gadget, more than say something like Castaway or Memento. Also, did I mention a lot of racist shit is in this? What I'm saying is, Andrew Lloyd Webber doesn't know what he's talking about. Speaking of Andrew Lloyd Webber not knowing what he's talking about, let's move on to our next meal! <laughs> Oh, I'd know that smell anywhere. Joel Schumacher, my favorite. As you all know, Broadway is in trouble, and that's why we're all here. Now, uh, you know me, I am the Phantom of the Opera. The Phantom of the Opera is a 2004 musical drama film based on Andrew Lloyd Webber's 1986 musical of the same name, which in turn is based on the 1910 French novel Le Phantom de l'Opera by Gaston Leroux. Produced and co-written by Lloyd Webber and directed by Joel Schumacher, it stars Gerard Butler in the title role, Emmy Rossum, Patrick Wilson, Miranda Richardson, Minnie Driver, and Jennifer Ellison. Now this is a bit of a strange case because the film was announced all the way back in 1989, but production didn't begin until 2002. This was due to Andrew Lloyd Webber's messy divorce with Sarah Brightman, the musical star, and Joel Schumacher was busy making Batman movies that were actually fun to watch. Don't at me. Schumacher and Lloyd Webber restarted development for The Phantom of the Opera in 2003 after Lloyd Webber's really useful group had purchased the film rights from Warner Brothers in an attempt to produce The Phantom of the Opera independently. As a result, Lloyd Webber invested $6 million of his own money, and the full film was produced on an $80 million budget. So take this in. This was, at the time, and still is, one of the most expensive independent films ever made. So Andrew Lloyd Webber has first choice in director, casting approval, and complete creative control. If he felt stifled by the 1973 adaptation of Superstar, he must have been in heaven making this film. What a waste. So Joel Schumacher's big caveat was that he didn't want any big names for the leads, specifically The Phantom. Joel said, I don't want a big name uh, anywhere, as the, particularly as The Phantom, because if I do, the audience is going to come with an expectation and there's going to be baggage attacked, attached to this person, and I can't have the, the piece won't sing as a piece in the same way. And so from the very word go, it was sort of a given. Which on paper could be a good thing. I mean, they could take a deep dive into the musical theater world, find a well-respected vocalist, and they could really knock the socks off a larger audience. Take, for instance, Patrick Wilson, an incredible vocalist who hadn't really had much film experience, but had a ton of stage work under his belt, including the leading roles in Carousel in Oklahoma. Now nearly 20 years later, he's one of the most well-respected actors, leading three massive horror franchises and also being an Aquaman for whatever that's worth. Call me Ocean Master. Then there's Emmy Rossum, who I think gets a really bad rap for this film unnecessarily. She was 17 when they were shooting the film, and even at that age, she had quite a lengthy vocal history. Performing at the Metropolitan Opera since she was 7, when she was able to sing Happy Birthday in 12 different keys, then singing in 20 languages by the time she hit her teens. This girl is as close to a child prodigy as you can find, and she's good! She's really good! Hell, she's still got the chops all these years later! Mi piace bello. 
Her performance is good, and where the, her performance kind of falls flat feels more like a directorial issue. I mean, her performance is on point to what Sarah Brightman was doing in the 1986 music video with Steve Harley, and I believe that was the height of the direction that she was given. Now on to the big guy, the Phantom himself. We all know we got what we got in Gerard Butler, but would you believe that we almost had a completely different film with the potential casting of one Raul Esparza? Raul Esparza is one of the most respected, recognized vocalists on the planet. He's got a crazy good vocal range and an even better range of performances, from his work on Law & Order to his insanely memorable work on Brian Fuller's Hannibal in Pushing Daisies, and his unforgettably lackluster hosting abilities. It's a play about a group of fairy tale characters who are dealing with- why am I telling you about the story of Into the Woods? You know what Into the Woods is about, otherwise you wouldn't be here. So I saw the original cast, which is like, ah! Um, I left the theater and there's this big, I remember this big giant's leg kind of hanging over the side of the Martin Beck. You alright there, Raul? Blink twice if they're forcing you here at gunpoint. Raul Esparza is one of the most talented vocalists out there, and he was allegedly very close to playing the Phantom of the film. He stated so in this Theater Mania article. I asked the group if they ever had a courtesy audition. Esparza virtually jumped out of his chair to tell about the time a friend of his arranged such an audition with Joel Schumacher, who was set to direct the movie of Phantom of the Opera and was looking for an actor who'd play the title role. Esparza was doing a courtesy call himself, for he didn't think he had a chance at the role until he entered the downtown restaurant and met Schumacher, who immediately exclaimed, Oh my god, you're just what I'm looking for! And throughout the meeting, Schumacher just kept saying that so much that eventually Esparza came to think, Oh my god, I can't believe it, I'm actually going to be the Phantom of the Opera! Schumacher then said that he'd soon be in touch with him to make the final arrangements. Needless to say, Esparza didn't do the role, or any other in the 2004 non-blockbuster, but Esparza also pointed out that maybe Schumacher wasn't so full of it. For, he said, Joel cast Gerard Butler, and many people over the years say that we do look alike. Indeed, they do. So, Esparza concluded, I was the type he was looking for, just not the actual actor he was looking for. We really do live in the worst timeline. So we're stuck with a film adaptation with one Gerard Butler, who is definitely not Raul Esparza. Jerry Butler, who plays the Phantom, is, you know, is not a trained singer, but what he has naturally in the sort of emotional, rocky quality of his voice. Butler had no real singing training, unlike his two decorated co-stars. Therefore, he was provided with music lessons prior to filming. Boy, that was money well spent. <laughs> you will come! The Phantom of the Opera grossed $154.6 million worldwide, just barely recouping the budget, but not nearly the major success that they wanted. The film received mixed reviews from critics and an equally middling response from audiences. Critics praised the visuals and acting, particularly the performances of Butler and Rossum, but criticized the writing, directing, aesthetic choices, editing, cinematography, and vocal capabilities, orchestrations I could go on. It's not a good movie. It's barely a passable film. It's cheap, it's gaudy, and the choices of performers, cinematic techniques, and so on are baffling and terrible. Emmy Rossum was very green at the time, and a lot of what she does is aping off of the insane choices that Sarah Brightman made in the 80s. And I'm convinced that if she took the role today, she would have knocked it out of the park. Patrick Wilson obviously is the standout, and I love everything that the managers do. They're just mwah, perfect. Gerard Butler is bad. He's not as mockingly terrible as everyone likes to make you think, but he's still not great. I think Hugh Jackman or Russell Crowe's performances in Les Mis are much more unpleasant to listen to, but it is what it is. Are you a lady or the 
but I know what you're thinking, does this film have a Sansel? Well, yes and no. Andrew Lloyd Webber teamed up once again with lyricist Charles Hart to write a brand new song for the film, in hopes of that beautiful Oscar gold once again. The song was titled No One Would Listen. It's a song about how lonely the Phantom is, not to be confused with the other song about how lonely the Phantom is, or the other other song about how lonely the Phantom is. Not to harp on this too much, but this is a song and scene so pointless to the overall film that I can't even tell where the heck it would go in the film. Does it go after the graveyard scene, after all I ask of you, before seal my fate, before killing Joseph Bouquet? Where does it fit? However, in a surprising moment of restraint, Joel Schumacher cut it from the final film because it was literally that pointless. However, they pulled aside Minnie Driver, whose singing voice was dubbed throughout the entire film, and had her record an adult radio station version of the song entitled Learn to Be Lonely, which was marginally better, and played over the end credits of the film. Learn to be lonely. It was also performed at the Oscars, where it was sung by Beyonce, of all people? Because I know the first thing I think about when I think of Android Webber is... Beyonce. Yeah, right next to Austin Powers and the Lion King. So Beyonce's up on that stage, looking fabulous, killing it, being dragged around by a man in what has to be the laziest fandom costume I have ever seen. And I've seen the David Stoller version. Also, Andrew is on stage. Right next to her, because he could not stand Beyonce getting all the attention. To be as fair as I can be, this is probably the best version of the song, which doesn't mean it's good. I give it a 4 out of 10, pointless but harmless. And I bet you're wondering, no, he did not win the Oscar this time. Not even Beyonce was able to help this one. Now I'm sure you're sick of me throwing darts at what is admittedly a easy target of a film. So what did Sir Andrew of Sidmonton think of Joel Schumacher's masterpiece? Well, he liked it. I mean, it's not like he could really shit on it because he was where the buck stopped and had to approve all the choices, so he liked it. Lloyd Webber's official statement about it, made around the time of the film's release, was... I'm very pleased about it. I think Joel has done a fantastic job. I, I think his decision to go with young people who are relatively unknown, Gerard Butler and Emmy Rossum, is absolutely vindicated. I'm really pleased with the finished product. I can be a fan of it because I'm a, a theatre person and a theatre animal. I feel like I can sort of stand back a bit from this and truthfully say that I, I don't think anybody could have done a better job. That being said, good ol' Andy Lloyd Webber has changed his tune a little bit more in recent years. In 2020, Lloyd Webber told Variety that he believes Joel Schumacher aired in casting Gerard Butler in the lead role in 2004's The Phantom of the Opera. The, the Phantom was, was, was too young, and, and the whole point of The Phantom is he needs to be quite a bit older than Christine. Which I don't think is the problem with the movie, but hey, what do I know? I don't own a literal castle. So let's move on to the next one. Smells like cat litter. Oh no. It's cats. It's cats. Ugh, I hate cats. Both the animal and the musical. This was a bust. Cats is bad. Cats is very bad. You know it. I know it. Nothing more to say. Let's move on. I've got three words for you. Digital fur technology. Animation, a nightmare. Songs, terrible. Now let me be clear, the musical itself was no masterpiece. It's a nonsensical idea expanded into a cat-based insanity that suited the foreign tourists pretty well for way too many years. This wasn't some great work that Tom Hooper decided he wanted to ruin. There are no more jokes to be made about cats. I'm sure you've thought of 20 just sitting there, but there's nothing more to be said. Except this. Tom Hooper's commentary on this 
might be the most unintentionally hilarious thing I've ever seen. He thinks he made a movie. This film in some ways is about recovering that sense of being a child and that sense of childlike wonder. Tugger in this represents you know, the sin of vanity or self-regard, or being too narcissistic, plus also the perils of lust. The Egyptian, and specifically, you know, the, the, to talk about the one culture that revered the cat as a god, which is, of course, you know, the Egyptian religious culture. So I actually have one thing to add about the cast movie that I haven't seen anyone bring up in any of their numerous video essays. The original musical does have some intentionality to it that a lot of times gets removed. Take the Jellicle Songs for Jellicle Cats number that opens the show. It starts with a series of questions. Are you blind when you're born? Can you see in the dark? Can you look like a king? And would you sit on his throne? All those are specific questions, and every single verse of this song is asking questions that the chorus then answers. Are you blind when you're born? Because Jellicles are, and Jellicles do, and Jellicles do, and Jellicles would. They are answering in chronological order the questions asked by the previous verse. Why do I bring this up? Because the movie just ignores that and just says Jellicles can and Jellicles do in whatever order they want, not coinciding with the previous verse. What I'm saying is, this film didn't even do the bare minimum. But I don't need to say anything more about it. Musical Hell did a wonderful deep dive about it. Stealing Focus did a deep dive on it. Sideways did a deep dive on it. This fucker did a deep dive on it. So did this guy and that guy and for all these folks, it's done. Nobody cares about cats anymore. The meme has died. Not dissimilar from the way that the movie Musical died after Hello Dolly pulled the trigger when Dr. Doolittle loaded the gun and cocked it. Or, like when Cats 2019 pulled the trigger after the fam of the opera loaded the gun and cocked it. We're in a new world. The same as the old world. What the fuck am I talking about? Alright, so get this. There was a sample for this one too. Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote a new song for the movie version of Cats for the character of Victoria, as played by Francesca Hayward. Or as I like to call Victoria in the original stage production, the tampon cat. Ah, and that's it. Good night, everybody. So Andrew Lloyd Webber played the melody he vomited out earlier that week for Miss Taylor Blank Space Swift, and she more or less freestyle rapped the lyrics into the song 13 minutes before shooting, and bada bing, bada boom, we've got ourselves a sansel. Oh, you think I'm exaggerating, don't you? I can't even make this shit up. I played it to you, and I said this is a new song. You said, I'll do the lyric, and you did it then and there, more or less. So I wrote this, she spat out some words, we threw it in and called it a song! Oscar, please! The song simply does not work. It slows down the pace of a movie that is really relying on the pacing to propel it forward. The lyrics are basically nonsense, the performance from Francesca Hayward sounds like she's unsure of both the lyrics and the melody, probably because it was written right before she had to sing it. Also, the digital fur technology just doesn't help. It's bad. So bad that the song didn't even get nominated for the coveted Best Original Song Oscar thus destroying its existence as a sansel in the first place. It's a 1 out of 10. Easy. But enough of what I think. What does Sir Andrew think of this film? Well, it's easily his most vocal denouncement of an adaptation ever. Lloyd Webber said of Cats 2019, The problem with the film was that Tom Hooper decided he didn't want anybody involved in it who was involved in the original show, Lloyd Webber said. The whole thing was ridiculous. He also picked out James Corden's performance and called it absolutely un-Elliot. He also had this to say on his weird YouTube Let's Play channel. Bustopher, without interruption, as I wrote it, do not be beguiled by other versions. 
other versions with unfunny interpolations, which I begged to be cut out. Okay, this has nothing to do with anything, but this reminds me so much of the time that Chuck E. Cheese just kind of turned to the camera on his Let's Play channel and said poggers, and then started breathing and shaking heavily. These videos give the same vibe as what I'm trying to say. Poggers! So it's safe to say that he was not a fan of what Tom Hooper brought to the table for the film adaptation of Cats, and only played ball with it until the very moment he was no longer legally obligated to. Mad respect, man. He didn't stop there either. In late 2021, Lloyd Webber came out swinging again. Cats was off the scale all wrong. There wasn't really any understanding of why the music ticked at all. I saw it and I just thought, oh god, no. It was the first time in my 70-odd years on this planet that I went out and bought a dog. So the one good thing to come out of it is my little heavenese puppy. I wrote off and said, I needed him with me at all times because I'm emotionally damaged and I must have this therapy dog. The airline wrote back and said, can you prove that you really need him? And I said, Yes, just see what Hollywood did to my musical Cats. Then the approval came back with a note saying, no doctor's report required. I know what you're thinking. You're looking down at the runtime of the video and thinking, man, he's covered all the adaptations, but there's still a lot of video left. Well, what if I told you there was a series of short films Mr. Lloyd Webber has been posting where he's had total creative control? Well, that could only be. Oh, yeah. Hi everybody, I cannot believe that at 72 years old, I'm finally, finally on TikTok. Andrew Lloyd Webber joined TikTok in June of 2020, in the heat of the Pangea, when everyone was joining TikTok and learning too much about home baking. It started with him asking to duet with fans, but has now devolved over time to just be clips of Sir Andrew living his life, training his dog, and dancing. Wow, so Andrew Lloyd Webber's doing TikTok better than most millennials. Got a vibe! You may say that I'm stretching calling these TikToks films, but I went to film school long enough and watched enough of Andy Warhol's quote-unquote films to understand that both everything and nothing is cinema, so these count as much as anything else. Now I bet you're wondering where the movie musical was at this point in time. It was alive, as alive as it ever was, with children creating a series of short musical films so good that Disney had to take notice and create a movie musical in a quarantine. This was the most alive cinematic musicals has been since long before Hello Dolly pulled the trigger after Dr. Doolittle loaded the gun and cocked it. Then Dear Evan Hansen killed it. Now I've been following Lloyd Webber and his career for decades, watching him throughout the aughts and 2010s, and to be honest, these TikToks have been the most humanizing thing I've ever seen about him. He's so willing to make fun of himself, his legacy and his ego basically goes away. It's like when a celebrity plays themselves on SNL, it's just so much fun and charming to watch that you almost start to like them more through it. It also taps into one of my favorite things about Andrew Lloyd Webber throughout his entire career. He's always under the belief that the kids are the only tastemakers that matter. There's a recurring theme in Andrew Lloyd Webber's career that he's always wanted to be a part of the youth culture. Never the old fuddy-duddy. I respect that. It's no coincidence that when he revived Cats, he added a rum-tum-tugger rap right off the heels of the Hamilton explosion. Also, his most recent Superstar tour basically looks like the Hamilton set and aesthetics. Man, you'd almost think that Andrew wishes that he had written Hamilton. Let me tell you something, I wish I'd written Hamilton. <laughs> Don't we all, Andrew? Don't we all? However, chasing the taste of the youthful isn't anything new for Webber. 
He's been doing it since he started at 17, and you can see it in his film adaptations too. His two film adaptations of Superstar are chasing both the hippie counterculture of the 70s and the grunge culture of the late 90s. He approved the casting of one of the hottest pop stars in the world for his Evita adaptation, and he gave Taylor Swift the freedom to write lyrics for the film adaptation of what is likely one of his most successful properties. Now I know that may not sound like much in the grand scheme of things, but I think about the time Sondheim clutched his pearls because Lady Gaga sang a Sound of Music medley at the Oscars, and I have to hand it to Andrew Lloyd Webber. He wants to adapt, change, and embrace the kids and their interests head-on. I also think that Lloyd Webber may be the only composer of his contemporaries to say that he would welcome trans performers to play any of the roles that he's written. He stated, I've got nothing against a trans performer, Webber said. The question is, are they the best person for the role? You always want to cast the best person possible for the role. It really doesn't matter what they are or what color they are. It really doesn't matter. That's always been my mantra. A trans woman could play Christine, for instance, asked Cox. Yes, if she could sing it, Weber replied. I know that's a small gesture and he has yet to put the money where his mouth is, but I think this coming from his generation of composers is a big deal. But back to Lloyd Webber's TikTok. It's lovely, it's so charming, and I can watch him DJ Phantom or train his dog all day. It's a good lot of fun. And I think he's one of like three people over 70 doing TikTok properly. Hi, I'm just finishing a biscuit which somebody gave me which was in the fridge, so it's a bit cold and I think my teeth have fallen out. He's got a series of cinematic marvels going out here that outrank any of his actual film properties. Except here he has total unbridled creative control. But is there a Sansel? Of course there is. Available only on the TikTok, Andrew Lloyd Webber collaborated with up-and-coming artist Megan Thee Stallion on an arrangement of one of her biggest songs and one of his biggest songs, creating something new and beautiful. I don't cook, I don't clean, but let I, me tell you I got I, this ring. Gobble me, swallow me, drip down inside of me, quick jump out, but you let it get inside of me, I tell Okay, it's a bit of a cheat, but it's a good song and it only exists on TikTok, so it counts. It's my rules, 10 out of 10. Who cares what I think about his TikTok? What's Mr. Lloyd Webber have to say about it? Well, I sort of knew about TikTok over a year ago and thought it was intriguing. I mean, what I like about TikTok is quite simple. It's the fact that you're actually asking people in a way to dramatize something. I know that might sound a bit silly or a bit pompous, but it's not really. What you're saying is, here's a bit of music, put your interpretation to it. So it can be great fun introducing people to what I do, which is theater. Seeing what people have done with my music has been quite amusing for me. Oh, so that was a fun dive into TikTok. But I still feel like there's something else I should do before I can wrap this up all neatly. How about I rank these films and we can call it a day? To have Lloyd Andrew Lord Webber choose us to help him celebrate his 70th year is the icing on the icing on the cake. It's a cake with two icings. Bottom of the list and hot damn it's a shocker, it's Jesus Christ Superstar 2000. It's ugly to look at, ugly to listen to, and dated in every possible way. It's offensive to all sights and sounds and not even in a fun way. Next up is Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, one of the most grating musical films ever, but it's a very accurate representation of what the musical is, what it's trying to achieve, and all that jazz, but man, I don't like this musical that much either, so here we are! Up next in a shocking twist is Cats 2019, which is probably the worst film by all things considered, but hot damn, it's a lot of fun to watch. At number three, we've got Phantom of the Opera 2004, which isn't great, but the production design, the performance from Patrick Wilson, the orchestrations, they're all on point. I also think Emmy Rossum isn't given enough praise for her performance at such a young age. At number two, we've got Evita, which is very good. I really like this film. Madonna is good. Antonio Banderas is very good. The production design, the cinematography, moi, moi, perfect. However, it is topped by one. 
At number one, we have the original Jesus Christ Superstar 1973 film, and even I will admit this one's just a personal choice for me. I grew up with this film, the vocals are perfection, the performances between Carl Anderson and Ted Neely are absolutely incredible, and Norman Jewison is a completely unafraid director to embrace the innate musicality of the stage show. Also, it has the King Herod song sequence, and nothing could touch that. So this has been a fun rundown of Andrew Lloyd Webber's film adaptations. What do you think of his films? Do you agree with my opinions? Do you agree with Webber's own opinions? Do you also wish to own a castle? I know I do. Let me know in the comments. Also, don't forget to slam that bell icon and subscribe. Hey, thank you for watching. Should I do this again sometime? 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 Hey, Sondheim's got a lot of film adaptations. Do you think it would be a fun video to make out of that? Let us know in the comments. I would like to thank some people that made this video come together and made it possible. First and foremost, my director Miranda Moffat, thank you so much for coming out and making this look as great as it did and making me work harder than I ever had for a video, so I'm very grateful for that. Savannah Moffat, my wonderful chef who brought me all these and lifted the dome and helped out and making this possible. Elizabeth Esten, my incredible editor, thank you so much for taking the incoherent ramblings that come out of my face and making them sound almost intelligent. Thank you to Gabriella Day for coming in and looking at the script and making sure that it looked right as rain, and I appreciate you so, so much. Thank you to all the wonderful content creators who did the Andrew Lloyd Webber voices. Each and every one of them made my day, and I'm sure they've really livened up this video. Thank you for watching this far. I'm Jesse McNally, and let's do this again sometime. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.